listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Hey everyone, welcome to the Business of Baking podcast. It's Michelle, not that it would be anybody else. I always introduce myself, which is ridiculous because nobody else runs this show other than me, but I guess old habits die hard. I'm excited today to be talking to Kim Worker, who, hello, total fangirl moment here. I think she's completely amazing on a thousand levels. And if you've never heard of her, then I feel like your life now needs this episode in it. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we begin this chat. Actually, let me rewind that and say that this season, I'm really wanting lots of people who are not necessarily in the baking industry, but who have lots of things in common with us. The photographers, the florists, the crafters, all the people who are creatives and creatives in business who are experiencing the same kind of struggles and hopefully the same kind of triumphs that we are. So that is why she's here. But let me tell you a bit about her. She describes herself as the camp counselor for grown-ups, who I feel like this makes her my people because we can do stuff like face paint and tie-dye t-shirts together. And she thinks that we need to aim for good, creative, messy fun rather than just hoping for perfection right from the get-go. Kim is an unbelievably talented woman. Not only is she like super guru of the crochet world, but she's a freelance writer, editor, and speaker. And most interestingly to me, she's the woman behind the Mighty Ugly website and movement, which is a website that encourages all of us to just try stuff, which is something you guys have heard me say a thousand times, which is, you know, done is better than perfect, right? And her tagline from Mighty Ugly is that Mighty Ugly is about celebrating the benefits of failure so that we're not so afraid of doing the big things, which anybody who's followed me for a while knows that this means she is totally my people right? And not afraid of doing big things obviously applies to the handmade arts, but it's a bigger life lesson as well. Kim has edited magazines, written five books. I think it's still five, but she'll correct me if I'm wrong. Created and then sold an online magazine. She curates online communities. She teaches classes for herself, Creative Live and Blueprint, which is how I know her, formerly known as Craftsy. And if all that is not enough... She used to be a podcaster, but we're going to hear about what's happening to that. She runs an online community for creative adventurers. And just between you and I, if you stalk her Instagram, you'll find that she's dabbled in a bit of baking as well. So I feel like she is our people on about a thousand levels. So please welcome to the podcast today, Kim Worker, the amazing Kim Worker, actually. Hey, Kim. Hi. <laughs> I'm like half fallen over after that intro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too kind. I hope I live up to what you said. It's like super awkward to hear people talk about us, right? Yeah, totally. Like I'm in a room alone by myself and I feel that I'm cringing. And I'm like, at least there's nobody to see me cringe. Sure, every time somebody introduces me, I vacillate between like, this is really embarrassing and like, oh yeah, I've actually done a lot. Like, yay me. I know, right? Like, am I going to be a jerk and be like, no, it's seven books. And then I'm like, oh, oh my God, I've written seven books. That's inc- like... What am I even doing? <laughs> my bad. I, th- I thought it was five. Oh, my, it's seven. Okay. Sorry. It's a little bit. Let's weird. go back I- in time. Kim, you oh. have seven books. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that. It's a lot of books, Kim. It's a lot of books. 
I know. And you know what? It's like true story. I've been feeling panic recently because the last of those seven came out in 2014. So like I wrote that book six years ago and I haven't written one since. And I'm like, oh God. So to you, seven is like, oh, seven. <laughs> and to me, it's like, yeah, but there hasn't been one. No. Well, okay. To be fair, seven is a lot to me because I wrote one and the second one I have been supposedly writing for like two years. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Might be feeling a little bit of professional discomfort here over the fact that my second book is taking me forever. Oh no. It takes us all forever. It takes us all forever. You'll do it. You'll do it. Oh God. Listen, my goal is to get this thing out in the world, into the, in, out into the world by the end of the year. So here, maybe I need you to like kick me up the butt every once in a while. I'll be like, have, have you done that book? I mean, I'm writing it. I'm definitely writing it. It's just really slow. Challenge accepted. Well, you know, also, you know, spoiler alert for anyone listening, it's not a process driven book. It's not like how to do this or how to do that. And so because it has no process behind it, it's more like life philosophy stuff. It's a little bit, I'm finding it a little bit harder to write because I can't really necessarily follow a logical flow. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to solve all my life problems by the end of this podcast. (laughs) Okay. So Kim, tell me your story. How did you end up with such an incredibly varied business? Because now there's money making happening in a lot of places, right? The editing, the writing, the speaking, the books, the whatever. So tell me your story. How did you get here? Well, I'll preface it by saying there's a little bit of money making in each of those places. So I'm not like swimming in cash because each of those like revenue streams is piling cash on me. That's not how it is. But it is a varied story and a little bit of an interesting one. If like, I had a bit of an internet success story is what I had. Way back in 2004, there was nothing deliberate so much about the career that I built. A lot of what I did was open up my big fat mouth on the internet back when, you know, there were not so many think pieces about how the internet was democratizing you know, like the creative industry, it was more like, oh, look, blogs, like what can we do on here? And I kind of had a rant on the internet. And I mean, granted, it was a productive rant. It wasn't like about some celebrity and how horrible they are. And it wasn't about politics or religion. It was about crochet. And it was a positive rant. It was why isn't there more of it kind of a rant. And I was not an expert in crochet. I came not from having any expertise whatsoever and saying, I want to apply this expertise to creating something online. It was, I had learned how to knit a year earlier. I was a statistic and didn't know it. I was one of those like women in her mid twenties who learned how to knit in 2003 from the book Stitch and Bitch by Debbie Stoller, which was like the raging bestseller book in that era of the history of books and knitting. And Nitty.com was around. And Nitty.com is still around. It is an online magazine for knitting. They publish patterns and articles all about knitting. And a year after I learned how to knit, I learned how to crochet. So I went looking for the Nitty of Crochet. And in addition to not finding anything remotely like the Nitty of Crochet online, I found like three or four horrible blogs. And by horrible, I mean like black text on a purple background, blinking things, blurry photos of cats. And like, I just, I was like, I don't understand this at all. Why is there so much going on in knitting? There was like a a small but thriving community of bloggers and Nitty was not the only online magazine even in knitting at that time. And I was like, so what is going on with crochet? So really what I did was I took a giant leap out of absolute ignorance. I did not know at the time that 
crochet and knitting are not the same. The industry did not treat them the same. Knitters and crocheters are like completely different demographics as far as the industry is concerned. And so my assumption that what existed in knitting should exist in crochet was not an assumption that anyone else would think to make. And so I took to the internet and I was like, look, I just learned how to crochet like two weeks ago. So I don't know really anything about it, but I know how to make a website and I know how to string together an internet rant. And if you see this internet rant and you want to create a crochet magazine with me, let's see what we can do. And then I posted about it on craftster.org, craftster. Which oh, was, this is ancient right? history. Okay. It was yeah. ancient history. And at the time, Craftster was this like booming forum for all things crafts. And maybe looking back, we would call them like alternative crafts in that maybe sometimes people made crafts about their favorite books and movies and sci-fi shows or something, right? Like it was awesome. And I posted about it like, oh, I made this rant on the internet. And then that was it. And then suddenly I started getting emails. One of the first emails I got was actually from a yarn store in Australia saying, we're going to put a link to your website on our shop blog. And I was like, well, there's nothing there, but thank you. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> and then I heard from a writer who lives in France, but French was her second language and English was her third. And she kept apologizing for her English, which was the most impeccable, perfect English I'd ever read ever. And then I just started hearing from people. And what I did for the next five years of my life was try to catch up. It was like my rant was a tiny snowball. And then I spent the next five years chasing it down a mountain before it became like too unwieldy and like took out of town at the bottom of the mountain or something. And so that was it. From there, we created an online magazine and the people that I heard from started sending me designs and articles. And from that rant was born a publication that varied in publication kind of frequency from four to six times a year. And I started going to trade shows. And I eventually, as you said, became the editor of a print magazine, an interweave magazine, which was like the height of the industry. And it was kind of amazing. That is how I got my start. That's a very long answer. If this is a personal question, how did you afford it? Ah, this is a very good question. So back at the time that I started this, I was doing some freelance web work. So like I had in graduate school in the early 2000s taught myself HTML, not for my schoolwork. It was because I like lived by myself in a town where I didn't know anyone. And that was my hobby. I picked up a book and I was like, oh, I'll teach myself the internet. And I had moved here to, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and I moved here from the Eastern US. And so I was living in a place where I didn't really know anyone except my husband's friends. And I was like, well, I got to figure out what to do. So I actually went back to grad school here and discovered, as I had discovered about grad school back where I had done it the first time around, that I hated it. And it was not what I wanted to do with my life. And so I quit and had no idea what to do with myself. And so I started kind of freelancing, not having had formal training and mostly not knowing how to freelance. Like I had the skills at the time to be able to build people websites. What I didn't really have were the business skills and all the kind of stuff that come from running a freelance business. And it was not long into that that crochet me started. And so I looked at my husband. So I did both for a, a while and didn't make any money off of crochet me. And it was in around uh, maybe eight months after I started crochet me that I looked at my husband and I was like, here's the deal. 
I think this can go places. And I was starting to see at that point, it was later in 2004, books started coming out especially in like knitting, right? Like it was the blog to book phenomenon. It was somebody had a popular blog, they wrote a book. And this seemed like a really kind of amazing thing. And of course, I didn't know anything about book publishing then either. So I still naively thought, oh, publish a book, you'll make good money, (laughs) you know, and you'll keep going. But I saw some potential. At that point, you know, I had like that unheard of exponential rise in traffic to my website Loads of people were coming. I had a regular kind of contributor base of patterns coming in and articles coming in. And I was starting to get the feel for what I was doing eight months in. And so I was like, I want to stop freelancing and I want to work on this full time. And I'm not entirely sure how the money is going to come, but I think it's going to come. And he said, I think you're right. And so in October of 2004, I stopped making any money at all. And in December of that year, I got my first book contract. So it didn't lead to towering, oozing money, that book contract, but it did become one of six books I wrote about crochet over the years. And it did lead me to take all of those steps toward professionalism. So the answer essentially was that I rested on my husband's engineering salary, Mm -hmm. which was a gift. Until you could make this thing work in a bigger way, right? Yep. And then, you know, it was in December of 2006. So it was two years after I got that book contract that I was hired full-time to edit in a Reef Crochet magazine. At that time, my husband was in grad school and I supported him. So it worked out pretty well. Well, and the truth is, if you hadn't had your original internet rant and done all those things beforehand, you wouldn't have been in a position to even been offered a full-time editing job, right? That's right. Like I built like the site itself brought in no money at all. But it was, at the same time, the thing I built my career on. Mm, Yeah. Everything is a stepping stone to something else, right? Yeah, exactly. And so now your business is basically primarily the writing and editing, right? Mm -hmm. Then I imagine book royalties or whatever, right? No, not so much anymore. I barely make book royalties anymore. That's because some lazy people haven't produced a book in like seven years, Kim, but you know, whatever. (laughs) I know, I know. So it's, I mean, to be fair, book royalties were never a huge chunk of my income. They never, ever were, you know, and most of my books are now out of print. So that's kind of the normal cycle of things. Some of my books were in print for a year before they went out of print. Some are still in print. Like the very first crochet book I wrote was effectively a, like a, an encyclopedia. It was by Wiley Publishing, the same publishers of the Dummies books. And it mm-hmm. was called Teach Yourself Visually Crocheting. It's now in its second edition. It's still in print. So it's been in print for more than 10 years. And that's kind of amazing. That's almost unheard of, but that's like an evergreen book. That's almost like an encyclopedia. So everything else that I've done with like flair or style kind of was a flash in the pan and make it mighty ugly, which is the not crochet book that I wrote, which is more in line with the kinds of books that I would like to write in the sense that I really has a lot of writing in them. That's actually going out of print at the end of this year, I think. So, but that was in print for five years. And again, none of these books made a ton of money, but I have, you know, I teach workshops about Mighty Ugly and I go to conferences and I get paid and I speak to people about Mighty Ugly and I continue to write about it. And it really forms the foundation of all of the writing I do that keeps me in touch with my audience. And I sell classes and I kind of, you know, it's in that way that I kind of try very hard to make money. 
So I've heard when I created my first book, I wasn't expecting to make money out of it because somebody I met really early on in that process said to me, Michelle, it's like the world's most expensive business card. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a fair way of putting it. And especially if you're self-publishing. And I've self-published some things too. The seven books I've written were all traditionally published. And so there was, to a varying extent, depending on the book and the publisher I worked with, an advance that came with that. So not necessarily an advance that was sizable income that I would consider any real profit to have come out of it. Like it kind of paid me for my time to some extent or another. And for most of those books, I did not make much of anything after the fact. So there was very little financial risk to me in -hmm. writing those books and a ton of cachet. You're right. Like it's impressive. People love seeing a book. I love it. I consider each of those books to have been a tremendous accomplishment that I'm very proud of. You know, oh, the street cred is unbelievable. But it's also, this is going to sound lame, but like personal street cred? Like the fact that there is a book on my bookshelf, like a physical book with my name on it, I'm like, that is just the coolest thing in the world. Right? Honestly, like what can't you do now? I'm leaping tall buildings in a single bound. What do you mean? Yeah, this is like, I've right. done this now. That's it. Like, you know, this is makes means that I can literally do absolutely anything. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I feel about it too. Like as I sit here going, oh God, it's been six years. It's like, dude, you actually know how to do this, right? Like you're not even talking about leaping a building in a single bound. You're talking about doing a thing you've already done. Yeah. So So put your head down and do it. That's it. Right. Oh my God. Okay. Thanks for the butt whipping. Okay. So effectively you are running a creative based business, whether that's writing or crochet, whatever, it's still, it's still based in creativity and it has multiple income streams. Okay. I get it. Not any one of them stands out, but it's multiple income streams. So you're not reliant on this one thing to be bringing in all the cash and effectively it pays you living, right? So now you are able to live your life and do what you love and have these multiple sides of what you do. Yes? Yeah. I still rely on my husband's income. If he were to get hit by a bus, I would get a day job without hesitation at this stage right now. Mm -hmm. And that's because I'm two months out of having a day job. So I took a day job in the winter of 2017 Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, some of them personal, many of them professional. And that was great. And I really loved the steady income. And I learned during that time that I do not write well at night. And that meant that I could not have the day job and be a capital W writer because there was just, it wasn't going to happen. And so we kind of put our heads together and in many ways, like, that's it. My husband is my venture capital, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm very lucky that I have that. And if I didn't have that, I would structure my business in very, very different ways that I'm very well aware of. And so two months into not having my day job anymore, I am finding that my kind of plan is shifting a little bit in part because the day job I left had said that they were going to give me a certain number of hours a week in contract work, which I was very excited about. And what better way to go back to freelancing than with a client who's going to give you a ton of work and they haven't. So that was a bit of a shock to me because I didn't expect them not to. Like we left on very good terms. They were kind of begging me to stay. And then they were like, well, fine, we'll give you 10 hours a week of freelance work. And I was like, that's amazing. And I've had two in the two months since I left. Right. And so I'm a little bit up a creek. <laughs> well, they so, left you with the impression that you had a safety net, right? And now yeah, you don't. Exactly. But don't you I mean, think you make much better much braver choices when you lose the safety net? Like I like I have an expression, terrible situation. Oh, I can't remember. It's like terrible situations inspire big 
whatever progress or whatever. The original quote is swearing in it. So I'm trying not to use it, but essentially it's like terrible, crappy situations lead you to much better, much braver solutions. Yes. Because you have no choice, right? When your back is against the wall, what are you going to do but come up with a brilliant idea? Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what has happened in like the last two weeks where I was like, huh, you know, this ain't going to happen in any way. Is it my passion in life to do this? No. Like the truth is, I feel like I'm like whispering into my microphone right now, is that although I loved the people I worked with, I never loved the work. And so it was going to be great when I was going to go back to freelancing with a pile of that work to do because yay, not having to hustle for it. But the truth of the matter is, I kind of feel like I dodged a bullet. I don't want to be doing that kind of work. And also it's not editing work, which is the work that I love to do freelance most of all. Editing work to me doesn't ever take away from my writing. Like it's not, it doesn't use the same part of my brain. And so I can do it and do it hard and do it great, enjoy every second of it and not be exhausted and drained from it, which is such a gift. And I'm so glad that I realized actually through my work in my day job that that is actually like the freelance work I did before my day job is exactly the kind of work I want to do after. And so great. I don't know. I just, I don't even know where I was going. I cut myself off now and I don't know where I was, how to well, wrap that up. But essentially you left thinking, yep, I want to go back to what I love doing. I've got the safety net of all these hours. Now you don't. So you've really got to kind right. of pull it and out. So I have this choice, right? Like I have this choice. I can go after more editing clients, which I'm always open to doing, but it's not really the hustle I want to do. And the other is to identify some other revenue stream. And that is kind of where, so I did something. When I knew that I was leaving my day job last fall, I decided to revamp. I've worked with a virtual assistant for several years. And one of the best decisions I ever made was to keep her on while I had my day job. It meant that I could still write my Friday newsletter every week without interruption, even though I had a day job. She really kept things going. But the best thing about her is that she knows my business really well and she knows me really well. And so when I told her I was giving my notice and that I was thinking about what to do to lay a foundation to going back to generating my own income after I left my day job, she said, well, let's look at the work you've already done. And then she saw that I had done this class, right? So my big mission in life, no matter what I do, and interestingly, this goes for editing to an extent, is to help people explore their creativity and to do so while confronting their fears that keep them from exploring their creativity. It's like, let's do this thing anyway. And if what you want to do is try a thing you've never done, great. That's what you're going to do. If what you want to do is feel like a creative person by prioritizing creativity in your life, great. That's what you're going to do. And so I had this workshop that I kind of ran as a you know, we call it passive income, right? Like a class that was self-generating, self-doing that people could sign up for. And my assistant said, why don't we take that class that you've already planned out and written all of the classes for, but do it with live video with a whole cohort of people? And I was like, this is why I love you so much and value your input because I never would have thought of that. And that's an ace genius thing to do. And it meant that since I had already planned the class and done all of the writing, she could while I was still at my day job, do the stuff that was needed to lay all of the infrastructure work to get that done. And then I sold the class and you know, a few dozen people signed up, which was amazing for me for a self-driven class. Like I have tons of Craftsy students, which is amazing, and Craftsy generated all of those students. I am not great at selling my stuff and this worked. So number one, I was like, okay, I've worked in marketing for a year. Maybe I learned something. <laughs> so that was good. And then number two was, 
I sat every day, well, for 10 days out of a 14-day period and had live video conversations with my A number one, like most engaged audience, because those are the people who bought this class. And their feedback, like, I hope they got something out of the class, and I think they did, but I got so much out of it because I had scheduled it for like right after New Year's. I think it started January 8th. And then that was just a month after I left my day job and given the holidays and everything, it was effectively my first week at work. And I spent it with people who value my work more than anyone. And that was amazing. And I didn't think of it that way. And the feedback they gave me about wanting to stay in touch with each other, about gaining so much just from meeting other people who were interested as they were in doing creative things. Like no matter what they were, they cheered each other on. We had a group, we had conversation and they were like, Kim, we don't want this to end. We want to keep going. And I was like, oh my God, I can give you that. We can work this out. And so what's interesting to me is that it's exactly what I did back 15 years ago, which was like 150 million years ago in internet years <laughs> with Groshamy was bring a bunch of people together who had this one thing in common. And let's see if we can build something together. And so I had had a Patreon set up where I was trying in some way or another for the last couple of years to be like, maybe I can have patrons who support this wacky work I do. But really, all I did was stress myself out for not being consistent knowing exactly what I was doing. Like I didn't have a good plan for that. But now I have a plan for it. And the plan is you're not paying me. You're not giving money to support my work. You're like paying membership dues to support a community that you're helping to build and we're going to have this thing together. And what I'm going to get out of that is the tremendous satisfaction I have of bringing people together and going on creative adventures. Like, this is what I love. And I'll also do all the work to make the whole thing happen. And everybody else gets this thing they're missing in their lives. And that, to me, is like the fireworks keep going off my head every morning waking up about this. And it's been a really long time since that happened. So I don't even know if that's the question you asked. But that's my answer <laughs> to something. I think it's a, everything you've just said is a real indication of the direction the world is going because one of the things I talked about last year on the podcast, and I've been talking a lot in the blog as well, we're all really lonely. Yeah. We are as connected as ever. We have humans literally in our pocket, you know, three dozen humans in your pocket at any one time who, you know, are all over the world, but we are lonelier than we've ever been. And so what you're providing them with is community. And I think that as a culture, we are screaming out for community. Mm -hmm. The internet brought us all together in a way that's never been true before, but it's all kind of slightly artificial. Yeah. And what you're talking about is real connection, real people yeah. with real, you know, shortcomings and real victories that are sometimes very tiny. And, you know, you're talking about bringing real people together in a real way that has value and meaning to you, but also has value and meaning to them, which therefore is both giving and receiving in all directions. Yeah. Like it feels like this is the meaningful work I've been doing all along, but I had somehow lost my way in doing it and they brought me right back to it. And it was amazing. Yeah. Which is kind of the existential purpose of Mighty Ugly, which is like, let's just do cool stuff together and see what happens, right? You know what? Yes. So I just had a conversation the other day. So Mighty Ugly, I started the year my son was born and 
we adopted our son with about 24 hours notice. So I started Mighty Ugly the year my son was born, not knowing I was going to be a parent at the end of the year. And it was awesome and I loved it. And it was this like really interesting people kind of glommed on to the idea early. And I started going to conferences that were really awesome. And it was really fun. And then I had this kid (laughs) and there was a woman here in Vancouver who was starting a local maker fair. And Maker fairs are amazing. If you've never been to a maker fair, a maker fair is like what a science fair is in like a middle school or a high school, except it's grown-ups and you're allowed to touch everything they make and they're there to tell you how they make it and some of it is super weird and amazing. And I like it was a woman here who was spearheading starting one up. I loved that it was a woman and I was like I will do anything I can to make this happen. And then of course I was unable to do kind of anything because the maker fair was scheduled for June and in you know like on New Year's Eve 6 months before the maker fair I became a parent and then suddenly I had this like <laughs> infant and I kind of had nothing to give but I had a table there where I did Mighty Ugly in June and I had this baby strapped to me and we did this thing I've been wanting to be more part of that community ever since. And it, the community itself has gone through some ups and downs, but I met some really interesting people. Anyway, this is a really long way of saying that nine years later, that was back in 2010, now it's 2019. And the same woman who started the Maker Fair, which sadly has not been happening for the last couple of years, she's gone and done her master's degree. She's doing all sorts of neat stuff in education and with the arts university here. And we had coffee the other day and she invited me to go to a town 12 hours from here and be a part of an art symposium that she's doing. And I would have said yes, no matter what, but I especially said yes, because I want to be friends with her. Like (laughs) we're already kind of friends. I mean, like we've known each other for nine years, but like I'm going to get to spend a weekend with her and meet some of the other weirdos that she does work with, just like me, who I never would have known before. And we're all from Vancouver. We're all going to be traveling this 12 hours. Like half of me thinks this is going to turn into like a really, really absurdist kind of independent film. But like, that's fine. Those are the kinds of movies I like anyway. But that sense of like, you know, we've kind of been in the same place for a while, the two of us, but let's do this thing and see if creating something together will even make us better friends, right? Do you know what I find very ironic about that? Yeah. You're all traveling 12 hours, but you're all from Vancouver? I know. Well, so part of it, so it's- (laughs) How does that work? There's reason to that rhyme, (laughs) which is that she's been doing an arts residency in a gallery in this place 12 hours away from here. And it's in conjunction with the university here in Vancouver. And so the idea is to bring some Vancouver artists up there, which is, it's not because there aren't artists there. So it's, and really I'm just learning about it. I don't have that much more to say about it, but it's a big thing for me personally to be lumped in with people who are a part of an arts university because that is not my background. And there were many years in my life where I would have felt like that is a club I don't belong in and that I would have nothing to contribute because I'm not an artist and I don't do these things. And it feels very good to me. Maybe this is because I'm in my 40s and what people told me about being in your 40s is true in that suddenly you just stop caring what other people think. (laughs) Oh my God, preach it, man. That is so true. You just literally, it's like you wake up on your 40th birthday not caring 
at all. Right? I've got like zero Fs to give about anybody mm-hmm. else's opinion. Mm-hmm. And that includes like artists whose work I really respect. And the truth of the matter is it also comes from accepting the fact that I have this project I do that is relevant to what they do. And sure, it's my job to convince them of that, but I don't actually have to, convincing them doesn't mean leaping a tall building in a single bound. Convincing just means not getting in my own way and having a conversation, right? Instead of not having the conversation. For sure. You know, I think we live in an age where we all get in our own ways a lot, but I also think that societally and culturally we generate that. So Mm -hmm. like one of the things, I personally have a love-hate relationship with social media. So I love it and that it's fun and I get to see like my friends who I otherwise don't see and who live across the world and I get to be kind of part of their lives in some sort of weird tangential kind of way and whatever. And I love that it's inspiring and that it gives a platform to people who otherwise would not have one. In particular in the creative and artistic world, there are artists, crocheters, writers, bakers, whatever out there who previously had no audience, who were in there, you know, I'm like probably the best example out of the United States, probably like the pioneer woman, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to her having a blog, she was just some lady who lived on a farm who cooked, right? Yeah. And now, Reed Drummond, this, this is like massive international superstar, whatever, TV show, blah, 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 like Oprah's hanging out at her house or whatever, right? And she's a perfect example of somebody who, without the world of social media, wouldn't know she would have just been a farmer's wife, getting on with the job of cooking for her family, you know? So... I think it, uh, social media provides such an amazing platform for, and an audience for so many people who otherwise wouldn't have it, particularly for women. It gives them an opportunity to create a business, to make a living, to have a life outside of whatever their other commitments might be in a place they don't otherwise have it, right? And so I, I love it. On the other hand, it creates a bit of an artificial world. And comparison, as they say, is the thief of joy. And it's totally true because we see other people's perfectly curated lives well, it's kind of a twofold thing. One, there are people out there curating their lives, which I have no patience for personally. But anyway, there are people out there curating their lives. And then there are people who feel obligated to curate their lives, which means that they are not willing to take the risk to be brave and make ugly, weird, lumpy looking things with their first attempt at crochet and whatever. So it's funny. Like on the one hand, you have so much more opportunity to put your stuff out there. On the other hand, you don't want to try stuff in case it's not perfect. We all have this imposter syndrome thing, mm-hmm. right? And this is so true in the cake world. Like I get every week, I probably get, I don't know, half a dozen or something emails from people who attach a thousand photos to the email and say, Michelle, do you think I'm good enough to sell this? Right. And I'm like, okay, firstly, when did I become the expert of these things? Mm-hmm. Like really, why is my judgment halfway across the world worth anything? It's not. And secondly, I just think, I often look at these photographs and they are stunningly beautiful work. And I'm like, who is out there telling you that this is not good enough? Right. Like whose photos are you looking at that you think this is perfect? And so one of the aims I've always had with the business of baking is just like, tell it like it is. (laughs) Like my life is not perfect. I don't get things right all the time. Cakes still burn and fall over for me and whatever. So I'm curious, like you built your career from this internet rant. But mm-hmm. now you're kind of like, here I am telling you all, make ugly stuff, share it. Yeah. Make imperfect <laughs> stuff, share it. But the internet now require, seems to require this perfect world. So like, what's yeah. your take on that whole thing? 
If there's one thing, so I went on a book tour when Make It Mighty Ugly came out in 2014, and it was amazing. I went with two other authors. We pitched this thing. I don't know how we managed to get it done. We had two different publishers between the three of us. They got together. We did this thing, and we did like panel discussions everywhere we went, hosted by somebody in, like in the bookstore where we were visiting. And there was a phrase that I kept saying over and over again, and the phrase was, Pinterest is fiction. And at the time, I mean, like, this is now five years ago. And I really think that at the time, that wasn't the conversation that Pinterest is fiction. Whereas now, like you said, I think a big part of the conversation is that Pinterest is fiction. Instagram is fiction. You know, like I just, I am not a cake baker. I'm going <laughs> to, I didn't know if I was going to say this because I don't want to offend anyone, but I don't like cake. <laughs> I never have. Oh, Kim, I was like, you're not offending anyone because I don't like cake either. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Okay, good. So <laughs> I like donuts. That's what I always wanted when I was a kid. My mom told me when I was a teenager that she would get me a box of Dunkin' Donuts for my birthday, but she was pretty sure all the other parents looked at her like she was cheap. And I was like, oh, mom. I was like, first off, what's wrong with them? Second off, those donuts made me so happy. Anyway. Yeah, I don't like cake. I teach cake. I had a custom cake business for 10 years. Like cake is my whole life and I really don't like it. But I've been honest about that. Like anybody who's listening to this podcast now, I say it all the time. I'm like cake. Yeah, no. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I guess, okay. That almost, you know what? I finally- You're, you're like, in a I feel safe like place. But so- but I'm going to speak at the Mediavine conference, right? Mediavine is an advertising platform and I don't use it. Like I wasn't really familiar with it and I kind of cold pitched them when they put out a call for like speakers and workshops at their conference. And it, it turns out, I learned when I did that, is that it's a very popular platform amongst food bloggers. And so- oh, okay. I was excited about that. I was like, yeah, great food. That's kind of out of my niche, which is awesome, but it's the same. Food bloggers have the same kinds of things as craft bloggers. This is perfect. And I was really excited because I'm going to give the closing keynote at this conference in June. And in their newsletter, the Mediavine newsletter, they linked to a woman who's also speaking. And I went to her blog and she's a cake baker. And I, honestly, I wish I could remember her name, but I can, I'll email it to you after. And I kind of was scrolling through her blog and I saw that she has this post where she put side by side the finished photo of a cake she'd made. And then like from 10 steps back, the perspective of her room. And my favorite photo was the one with this beautiful natural light that was clearly coming from a window. And then from 10 steps back, you see that she's propped it on her, like a baby's changing table right next to a window. <laughs> and like, in the context of all of the other things, you know she wasn't doing that just to make a point. Like most of them are taken on her coffee table in her living room with toys all over the place and children, you know, kind of like playing in the background and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it's fiction. And her whole point was, this is fiction. And I loved it so much because it is. And the truth is, she's also a wildly successful blogger. She's been blogging for like 10 months or something and like makes a living wage at it or more. Like she's bananas. She is the exception to the rule in so many ways, but I so appreciated that she is like comfortable enough in the success that is so new for her that she also was like, we're going to pull back the curtain here and I'm going to show you what this is really like. And I feel like that is using her power for good. That's using the audience that she's built up, the power and influence that she has to remind people that the work she does is important and it's good and it's also a bit of fiction. And I love fiction. I think fiction is great, but we all open up a novel knowing we're not reading a true story. 
Mm. And we don't approach social media the same way. And I think we really could and we should. It doesn't mean we're going to enjoy it any less. We don't not enjoy a novel because it's not a true story. That doesn't get in our way of enjoying it. But if we read a novel and it's about this amazing person who overcomes every you know crazy thing and falls in love and lives their perfect life in the end, we might read that and be like, what's wrong with me? My life is so hard. And that's what we do with social media so much. We read it as if it's true. We compare our own messy life to it and we let ourselves get away with it. And so we need to stop doing it. We need more people to say like, let's pull back the curtain and I'm going to show you the line between the fiction and the nonfiction in this. We're going to really delineate here and make very clear where the story starts and the reality ends. And I don't know what we can do with that in the end. I mean, hopefully we can let ourselves go. And so, yeah, with Mighty Ugly, the thing that I've taken to saying more recently to people who make something for the first time is it's perfect however it comes out the first time. Your first time try in anything, if it's a burnt lopsided cake that almost sets fire to your house, that's pretty perfect for your first go of it. I'm pretty sure that's what would happen to me. And then the, the real question isn't, is this good enough? Of course it's good enough. It's your very first try. The question is, are you going to do it again? And the answer doesn't have to be yes. You can learn that you hate it and you didn't enjoy a minute of it. And why would you ever spend your time doing that again? And that's fine. But if you have that little voice inside of you that's like, I think I know what I did wrong there. Well, then you've got to go back and try it again because you owe it to yourself to know that you can learn from those catastrophes you make. You owe it to yourself to learn that. And so go back the next time and, you know, there was certainly there would be like a dozen things that go on if you almost burn your house down. But if you identify one of them and change it, then you've only got 11 more mistakes to work out in the end <laughs> and you might have fun doing it. I mean, honestly, that's how I feel about bread baking. Like this to me, there's a science to it that I find deeply satisfying. And so I will happily burn things and not have things come out the way I wanted them to and be like dense or whatever. But the thing about bread is that so much of it is science. And so I can say, okay, this happened this way. Was it the weather? Was it, you know, the temperature of my oven? Was it, did I need it enough or not enough? Or is my yeast a little bit old or what's going on there? And I'm fascinated by it and I want to figure it out. It's like this mystery I need to solve. And I'm not going to become a capital B bread baker. This isn't something that I want to pursue for anything other than my own knowledge of it. And I try to take really beautiful photos of it. And what's funny is I'll think about it. I'll be like, why do I want this photo I'm going to post on Instagram of my everything bagels? Why do I want those you know, sesame seeds to really pop? <laughs> and the answer is that I kind of, I want to start a conversation. And this is my means to start a conversation with people about it. Then yeah. I'm going to do it. I anyway, saw those bagels. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, they were really good. They really were good bagels. <laughs> Those sesames popped, let me tell you. <laughs> I bought black sesame seeds just because like my husband read somewhere that often bagel bakers will put black sesame seeds in with the regular colored sesame seeds just to make it look better. And I was like, wow, that is a next level trick. Oh, yeah. okay. I've baked bagels and I've never, they're called my jello seeds. I've never used them for like sexing up my bagel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, 
Now you can. You just changed my whole life. You just changed my whole life. That's it. I actually do own Nigella seeds, but I've never used them on a bagel. And I feel like this is remiss of me. And I need to, I need to like bust out my bagel yeah. baking skills. <laughs> so like, this is the thing, right? My, I had a really interesting conversation literally about an hour before talking to you where somebody said something like, oh, that's like the best in the world. And I said, well, how many others have you had? And he was like, does it matter? It's the best in the world to me. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, it kind of matters because I don't believe you if you've only had like one other one. I don't even remember what we're talking about. If you only have one other one, how am I supposed to trust that like you're a good indicator of the best in the world when you've like only ever had one other, you know, black sesame seed bagel or whatever. And he's yeah. like, Michelle, you're totally missing the point. The point is it's the best in the world to me. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how many I've tried. It doesn't matter how many exist. It matters that I think it's the best in the world. That's it. And yeah. frankly, the next sentence was, and frankly, I don't really care if you're taking my opinion into heart or not, because it only matters to me. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh. fair call. Right? You know, it's really funny. So along the same lines, I have a cousin. It's actually my late cousin's husband would always say that the food he was eating was the best he ever had in his life. And he's a really understated guy. And he would say this at like a Passover Seder. You know, like this. Oh, pot- when everybody knows the food is just bad anyway. Right? Well, that's it, right? Like this pot roast made for 30 people in yeah. an overcrowded kitchen. It's the best pot roast I've ever had in my life. And <laughs> it was really very interesting. And I, as I spent more time with him, as I got to know him over the years, I really started to appreciate that he said this. And I have found myself saying it as well. And it's different from the conversation that you had because it, it occurred to me, like, he doesn't actually mean that it's literally the best he's ever had in his life. But it's his way of conveying his profound appreciation in that moment for the food that he's eating. And it could be at a restaurant. It could be somewhere else. It's important to him that like, if he would take me out somewhere, it would be important to him that I enjoyed myself. But it would also be important to him that like the wait staff knew that we were appreciative. And he would say, the soup is the best. It's the best soup I ever had in my life. And I just really, like, I just started seeing layers and layers of meaning in it, right? It was, it's his gratitude. It wasn't just a throwaway thing. He wasn't just exaggerating for the sake of it. He wasn't being flamboyant. He was just trying to, like, in this moment, for him, it was in this moment of my life, this is the best thing I could ever have. This is the best thing I've ever had. I'm here. I'm in this beautiful place. It's really good food. I'm with you. This is the best I've ever had in my life. And it somehow never seemed cheap. It never seems like a throwaway. Every time he says it, I believe it. And so I've started saying it because I want people to believe it too. Like really, there's nowhere I'd rather be right now. And it's not just about maybe the way the food tastes. And it's not just about the ambiance of the restaurant or the table you've set in your home. This is exactly where I, this is the best I've ever had in my life. And to say it with meaning, you know, I think there's a lot of the best we've ever had. I just totally got chills. Because all that is, is profound gratitude. Yeah. It doesn't mean best compared to other things. It means in this immediate right now minute, this is the best. And that still goes back to ugly crochet animals and cakes that fall over. This is the best I've done right now. That's right. And that's enough. If this ends tomorrow, what's going to matter is that I had a try at this. It's not right that it was perfect. That's it, right? Like, do you want to die tomorrow? thinking of all the things you didn't try, no, right? Or do you want to know that even though you made a heap of hideousness, you gave it your all, right? And there's really, all of us only have so much capacity to love and enjoy things, 
right? Like nobody loves everything and loves doing everything. Like my husband used to complain to me that I would, like I didn't like enough things and I was really negative about things. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, the things we don't like make us as interesting as the things we do like, but it's what we do with the things we like that matters. Am I going to go back another time and try again? Am I going to say, I made this lopsided crochet hat. It doesn't fit a human head. I'm going to give it to my dog and I'm going to see if I could try that again, you know? And then maybe what, like in five years, I'm going to whip them out three in a weekend because they come to me so naturally. I don't even have to think about it anymore. And I moved on to something else. Maybe that something else is something more complex and crochet. Maybe that something else is learning how to watercolor paint or to work with fondant or to do whatever. But just knowing that you can try and fail and have that failure be exactly what it's supposed to be. Like it's a diamond in the rough who picks up something and the very first time truly nails it. That's not normal. That's weird. And I've seen people do it. I really have. I've had like that person in my class who has never crocheted before and it like skips to the head of everything and like it just makes sense to them. And that's wonderful and I encourage that, but that's not usual. Usual is, oh my God, I feel like I have seven hands here and I can't coordinate any of them. Usual is, this is so tight, I can't even stick my hook in it. I don't know what to happen. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do this. And I do this with writers too when I work editorially with somebody at the beginning of a project when they're like, I don't even know what's happening. I don't know what to, you know, I'm like, dude, one step at a time. We're going to take a deep breath and we're just going to see where it goes. And you can always undo what you've done and you can always pull back halfway and start again in another direction, just like you can in crochet. All of these things are possible, and that's important. It's important. So whatever it is that you produce on your very first try at something, it is perfect for your first try. That's it. It is what it is, and that is what it is. Nobody nails it. I mean, except for those few people, and they're wonderful and whatever, but we don't judge ourselves against them because that's not fair to us. (laughs) And they're unicorns, you know. Right, they're unicorns. Yeah, they can be unicorns. It's okay. We don't only exactly. be unicorns. We and all I, love I, unicorns. Well, we do, but we don't need that many of them in our lives. And it's not all that useful of an animal, just quietly. It's sparkly right. and pretty little to look at, but not all that helpful. What you need is a horse. It's going to get you up and down the <laughs> farm or whatever, you know? So it's just a different, you know, I think people are really afraid to try. Re- and this is, I struggle with that because that's not something I've ever been afraid of. Mm-hmm. Like I've always had this attitude, like I want to try a thousand things and if 999 of them totally suck, I'm okay with that. But at least I tried a thousand things. Yeah. And like, yeah. for me, the joy is in the trying, like, you know, I decided to pick up a new language this year. Right. Ooh. <laughs> and I suck at it, but well, <laughs> I don't really, I, well, I think I suck at it, but it's been 32 days now because the Duolingo app tells me <laughs> 32 days. And I was practicing with a friend recently and I'm like, this totally sucks, doesn't it? And he's like, yeah, it sucks, but it's way better than it was at day one. And right. it's way better than it was at day two. And it's way better than it was with, and he's like, so every day you're getting a little bit better and you can carry on about how much you suck. Great. But I'm here to tell you that actually it's improving. And I'm like, yeah. oh, huh. thanks. Right? But exactly. I'm just going to keep going. Cause I'm like, you know what? I'm either going to master it or I won't. But if I don't at least give it a try, then I'm definitely not mastering anything. So exactly. I mean, like the truth of the matter is, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because I don't know if you notice I'm in this bit of a like, you know, not an existential crisis in my life. What am I going to be when I grow up? Right? What am I going to be when I grow up? In the last 15 years of my life, I've had two ideas that stuck. Two. That's it. An average of one idea every seven and a half years that stuck. One of them was that crochet could be done way better than it was being done in the industry. 
And one of them was that making ugly things on purpose can be a profoundly valuable experience. That's it. Those are my two ideas. In that time, I have met a lot of success following those two ideas and a lot of failures. And I've had a metric ton (laughs) of ideas that went absolutely nowhere. And other ideas that I've just been nursing and holding in my heart for like, who knows when the right time will come to strike. But like, that's okay. And so far your survival rate of all that, 100%. Well, right, of those two ideas. Yeah, well, and and all the ones that didn't work. Right? So many of them went nowhere. There have been times when I've been like, I have my poor literary agent. I love that I have a literary agent and she is amazing and I adore her. But the number of times that I have sent her an email at like four in the morning, like, this is it. I've got that. She's like, oh, she's in like a fever dream. Like, what is happening? <laughs> I'm, one of the nice things about being in my 40s is that I'm pretty sure that since I turned 40, I have not done that. I'm able to like be like, oh, dude, you need no external validation for this. You can just stop. <laughs> but like there have been all kinds of those kinds of things and they're good. It's good to have those moments of, I'm going to do this another crazy, amazing thing. You know, but the truth of the matter is that maybe it'll work. You know, I don't hold back anymore because I've had these two, you know, like I've worked in the crafts industry with a project called Ugly and like <laughs> made it work and kind of like would have been a lot better to make that work if the word ugly weren't in the name of it because it really gives people pause <laughs> which is fine but like that's okay if i could make that work then eventually i'm gonna light on something that isn't just a flash in the pan for me and i know so many of them are like what i love about my literary agent is that it's not that she necessarily thought that the ideas i was sending her in a fever dream were bad is that i think she just knew that writing that email to her i was already at the end of my wick like that was it that was the idea the light had burnt out and that it probably wasn't going to go anywhere and that i wouldn't wake up the next morning and start writing that book right like the book ideas i have right now there are two of them i haven't really told anyone about. I've been nursing them and nudging them and writing about them and starting to write them on my own for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's how I know that they're projects I'm going to see through to the end. Whether they succeed or fail is going to be out of my hands, but I will finish them or at least one of them because I'm not sure I like the other one anymore. But I will finish it because I need to for me. And then if other people decide that it's something that they enjoy too, wonderful. You know what I love about what you just said? I'm finishing this for me. Yeah. If no one ever reads it, who cares? Yeah. It's intrinsic value won't change whether somebody reads it or not. Right. It's existence is its value. That's right. And frankly, it's a different kind of book for me. Like I'm somebody, we talked about this at the very beginning of our conversation, I think, right? Like a book, I've done that. If I've done that, I can do anything, especially write another book. I know what's involved with that. That's a really big project. And I've learned how to do it over the years. I've learned how to do it in a way that works for me. But 100% of my books have been nonfiction. And I love that. But I have an idea for a story. And I've never, like since 11th grade creative writing class, I have not written a story. I don't even make stories up for my son. We read books together. But my brain doesn't work that way but I've got this story idea and it's the kind of book that like I like to read in a day. 
and I want to write that book. I want to spend like a year of my life writing a book that someone may someday read in a day. That's what I want to do. And I'm terrified of it because it's the kind of book I've never done. And I keep reminding myself that, yeah, but unlike somebody who's really starting from scratch here, I actually have written that many words before for a single project. Like in terms of the quantity of this project, I know I can do that. Right. So you can do this. You can write this book and make it happen, even if it's nothing you've ever done before. Well, the fiction part you've never done before, the writing words part you have. Yeah. And so it's like every time I'm in a panic of like, what are you even doing? You have no idea what you're doing. There's a part of me that's like, first off, who cares? And second off, I know way more about this than I'm giving myself credit for. Right. And like, okay, so I'm going to do it. And then I just put my head back down and I do it. And it, it feels good, but it's like a total roller coaster. I think that's the same roller coaster we feel about anything that we're trying that's new. It's full of, who the hell do I think I am for doing this? Like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to try that again for you. So who that, on earth do I think I am for doing this, right? Well, like, yeah, you were the person who just tried it and had fun. So that actually kind of leads me to kind of our last-ish question for our chat today, mm-hmm. which is that like... When we all started in this craft world, right, whatever we were doing, fabric making, felting, cake making, whatever, cookie baking, whatever we were doing, crocheting, we started out with this curiosity, right? I'm going to try this and see what happens, right? And I do think those who are brave enough to try really do try with that spirit of curiosity in their heart, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And then a lot of people in the creative arts turn that curious hobby into a business. Mm -hmm. And it all falls apart. Because suddenly they're going, does anybody have a pattern for this? Does anybody have a cutter for this? Does anybody have a pen that can do this? Does anybody? And we all start madly panicking, looking for tools or tutorials or patterns or whatever it is to suddenly make this thing perfect. You know, the number of times I see, does anybody have a absolutely idiot proof, fail safe, most amazing chocolate cake recipe ever that's going to work on the first try? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the unfortunate side effects of taking a craft or creative endeavor and turning it into a business is that you lose your curiosity or you lose your, uh, maybe you don't lose your curiosity, you lose your willingness to be curious. You lose your Mm. willingness to try stuff. It's like the minute somebody handed you money for that thing, you rightfully so felt a responsibility to get it right and get it perfect and get it whatever. But I think that that is the great disadvantage of taking your creative endeavor and turning it into a business, right? Because suddenly you're not like, let me just try this and see what happens. And so one of the things I'm struggling with professionally is that I've spent the last however many years of my life teaching people how to turn things into a business. And what's dawned on me in probably the last year or so is that by doing that, they are removing from their lives the space for creativity, the space for free time, the space for having a hobby for hobby's sake, not for business's sake, right? It's this thing where like, I used to have a job and then I did my craft or my, I don't know, Irish dancing or whatever it is at night. And that was my downtime. That was my fun time. That was my time away from work, my time away from my kids, my whatever. And then I turned this craft thing into a hobby. And so now I work all day as an accountant, dentist, whatever. And I also work all night. So where in my life is the space for creative expression and downtime and relaxing and just having fun with something disappears. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? Like you personally, because your creative life is now your work life all the time. So I get that you're baking for fun, (laughs) but I think that's a struggle. And I think that's Mm -hmm. why so many people, certainly in the baking industry, burn out like 
a firework. Like literally it's like this big push and then they just fizzle. Because I think that they went from being someone who had downtime, free time, creative time to being someone who doesn't have that. Yeah. So it's gone. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. I have a two pronged answer to your question for myself. One is that over the years, I have allowed myself to identify. So I really struggled with this in crochet. I really struggled with it because I never sold crochet, right? Like I never made crochet items to sell. And so I was always in some way or another, my product, like myself, I was the product. I was either the product because really what I was making money off of were my skills or because in some way I was seen as a like a personality and that was in crochet, right? And so I really struggled with, it wasn't so much that I had made my hobby into my business as much as I had made a persona and people mistook my persona for me. And sometimes I did too. And I didn't know how to deal with that. And that was a bit brutal. And after I left crochet, which was a major turning point in my professional life. So I burnt out after five years. I started that website with a rant in February. It was February 26th, 2004 was when I pressed publish on that rant. And I quit my job as the editor of Interweave Crochet and sold the website to the publisher in December of 2008. So it was effectively five years. And I simply... Like I was done. I had nothing more to say about crochet. And part of the reason was that I had an opportunity to say anything about anything other than crochet. Like I lost kind of all of the different sources of fuel that made the fire of my passion for what I was doing. And also I came to realize that I had other interests and I had pursued this one topic, but it didn't allow room for all of the other things that I was interested in. And it also didn't allow room for all of the influences that made my work what it was. Like crochet at that time had no room for me to talk about being a feminist and how being a feminist influenced the way I did my work in crochet. There was no room for that. And in part, there was no room for it because the people I was working for said there was no room for it. You know, like that's, and I believed it. The truth of the matter is that I could have said anything I wanted to say and accepted the consequences. And honestly, I could have gotten fired. Maybe not. No, I don't know if that's not fair at this point. But anyway, in theory, I could have. I don't actually think I would have. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Anyway, so that's one prong is that like for myself, after I allowed myself, I took, it was the hardest thing I ever did was quit in that way. Because by that point, like everything before then was almost an accident. I had done good work and I did the best work that I could and I had ambition and I just kept chasing that idea. And it went to places that if I had tried to get to those places really deliberately, I don't think I could have done it. I just let myself say yes when it felt right to say yes and I kept going. Major life lesson there for sure. But quitting was hard because quitting was at a time that I was at the pinnacle of my career. I had a job that people in the industry for decades would have wanted. And I was 30 and I was quitting and I needed to. My mental health had gone through the toilet and I needed to have more balance in my life and I needed to pursue other interests. And I knew that I would be letting people down 
because the way that I worked in crochet and the way that I got to where I was, was not just through doing good work. It was by being absolutely convinced that the work that was out in the world could be better. And people believed it and people were on it with me and they felt that we together had created something better. And then I needed to walk away. And I was convinced that I was going to let them down and that they were going to decide that I had been a fraud all along. And I dealt with it by being very honest about my own needs and was delighted. And one of the most profound experiences of my life was the response that people gave me when I told them I was quitting, which was 100% supportive. It was amazing. And I cried for days out of happiness and gratitude. And that was profound. And after that, I have made sure to give myself the time and license to pursue whatever it is I'm curious about when I need to pursue it. And it's different, a want and a need. For me, the need is when I can't not do it. I'm consumed by it. I'm like procrastinating on the internet instead of doing my work because really all I want to be doing is this other thing. Then I shut my laptop, I put my work away, I close my notebook, and I go do that thing. Thankfully for me, the things I get obsessed about don't involve like thousands of miles of travel and, you know, weeks of planning. It's usually like, I've never carved a stamp before. I think I'm going to go try to do that, right? Like, and then I spend my half an hour and I like, it's like exercising demons. It's like, there's something inside me that needs to come out. And if I don't let it out, then it festers and becomes something awful. (laughs) And then like, there's nothing to do but do it in the end anyway. And so I've learned to notice where that happens. And I like the way that you put that in terms of curiosity, because I think that for me, that's exactly what it is. I'm curious about what it feels like to put a knife into that medium. I'm curious about how paint works, or I'm curious about whether I can even make a bagel. I don't know. You know, like I'm curious about these things and I've got to see. And in the end, That is for me, 100%. I may take a photo and share it and talk about the experience of it, but like I do that for me and that's in part how I keep that balance is that no matter how busy I am, no matter whatever, the truth is when I'm really hell-bent on doing my own work, the curiosity doesn't have a way of poking in. It doesn't end up being a way to procrastinate, but I will absolutely put away what I quote-unquote should be doing when that curiosity makes it very clear to me that I have to do that. And so I've given myself permission to put down what I should be doing in order to do that other thing. And that's not something that's like on a day-to-day basis. On a, this is the second prong, by the way. On the day-to-day basis, I take five minutes or 10 minutes a day or even one minute a day and I squeeze it in whether I'm feeling it or not. And that is a skill that I learned back in 2014. Again, that was a really big year for me, I guess, when I did something, a challenge, a daily challenge called the year of making. And the idea was I would make something every single day for a year. I had never, ever been able to follow through with any kind of challenge, even just for a month before. But I gave myself almost no rules. The only rule that I had was that it had to be making something that didn't exist before. If it was a box of mac and cheese, great. If it was three stitches knitted on a scarf, great. If I ended up spending two hours watching an entire movie and crocheting the whole time, fine. And so I took the pressure off. There was no right way to do it. I just had to do it. And I've been doing it ever since. And so this is like my sixth year of making. And sure, I'll miss a day here or there. But really part of the lesson to learn there is that you can miss a day or two. And the whole trick is not to have that be a reason to stop. 
right? You miss a day or two, you have the plague or there's a family emergency or something happens and you're in bed and you realize you haven't done anything. Fine. The whole thing is to just pick right up where you left off the next day and not use it as an excuse to give up. And that was profound to me. And so on most of my days, that's what I do. I knit a few stitches here. I crochet a few stitches there. Some days I spend four hours making bagels. You know, I let myself do what I'm going to do, but on the days when I'm not feeling it, on the days when I'm exhausted and my kid's been sick or had a nightmare up late right when I was going to be spending my 20 minutes of bliss doing whatever I was going to be doing, I still make sure that I spend at least a couple of minutes. Kim Walker, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just talked so much. (laughs) Can we just be like best friends and run off into the sunset together? And like, I will take care of all the cooking and the baking. And like, you just like make lumpy hats for us to wear. Can we do that? I can make lumpy hats. That's like the best proposition ever. (laughs) (laughs) This has been one of the most amazing conversations I've actually think I've had in a very long time, let alone on the podcast. I just feel you have so much beautiful energy and so many interesting things to say. And I think that the message you're, you're giving everyone who's listening and me personally too, is just keep on showing up. Just keep on doing stuff. Like release yourself from the need to have it be perfect and just do stuff. Doing mm-hmm. stuff has value in and of itself. It's not the That's end right. result. It's the getting there, you know? Yeah. Not the destination. It's the journey, Kim. (laughs) But it's true. It's true. Just go make stuff. Eventually you have a lot, a bunch of stuff and some of it's cool and some of it's not cool. But the point is you did it, right? Exactly. That is the message. Kim and I are here to tell you, go out and do great stuff. And by great, we just mean that it exists. Exactly. Do terrible stuff too, as long as you're doing it. Yeah. Do really ugly things. Like legitimately, like purposely screw stuff up just to see what happens. Like if I put three extra unicorn hairs in that cookie dough, will it still come out okay? Don't know until you try, right? So go find out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, firstly, find a unicorn, but yeah, find out. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Kim. It's been like an incredible, amazing pleasure. And I feel like we could just talk forever. Maybe we just need to have our own podcast where we just talk all day to each other for like days. (laughs) That'd be awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. If you guys want to check out more about Mighty Ugly and Kim, you should probably start at her website, which is kimworker.com. Worker with a double E. There's no O in there. Although I feel like if your really name was Worker, that would be appropriate because you do a lot of cool work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I will put in the show notes lots of links to Mighty Ugly and all the other cool stuff and like links to her books so that maybe if we all go and buy all these books that are still in print, we can like keep them alive for like another year or something. I don't know. So let's make this happen. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. I will catch you all in the next episode. As usual, questions, comments, concerns, whatever. Just want to like say, hey, Michelle, how are you doing? You're always welcome to drop me an email. In the meantime, have an awesome week and just go do stuff. That's it. We want you to go do stuff. A lot of stuff. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.